Would you please take your Bibles and open to Ezra chapter 4. This summer we'll spend some weeks studying the work of Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, building the temple, restoring the people of God to their land. And you'll remember that up until this point in the book of Ezra, we have the account of the exiles at the command of Cyrus, king of Persia, returning to their land and having the joy of having hope that God would restore them to their native land and that God would restore their fortunes, that they would see his sovereignty in their lives and that they would be able to build an altar. They set about building the altar, but that ultimately that they would rebuild the temple and that they would worship God as God commanded. With chapter 4, though, we have a change. And the change is that uh, the revival meets opposition. There were always those who, rather than celebrating the restoration of the good and the right and the true, hate it and oppose the work of reform and renewal. And before we read our text, I want us to look at this theme a little bit so it's firmly fixed in our minds that, as I believe it was uh, John Newton in a book in my library, a very old one, I opened it up. The only thing I've read in it is the title. But I love the title. The title is something, a history of the church. And then underneath one of those long subtitles, it says, with an account of how vital religion has been opposed in the church by all people through all time or something to the effect. And I thought, now there is a title that would sell well among evangelicals. Here we are as evangelicals, just so proud of... I mean, imagine now we have the best spots at the front of Borders and Barnes & Noble for the Left Behind series. We've made it. You know, $1 billion capitalized of just those books and their ancillary products. $1 billion. We've made it, haven't we? And so uh, we read a title like that and we think, man, that guy, he sure woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You know, he's got maybe an ulcer. Or maybe his mother didn't love him. Or maybe his father was dogmatic. Undoubtedly, something happened to John Newton. What happened to John Newton? You know, why would he write a title across history? Throughout time, among all peoples, vital religion has always been opposed in the church. We say, well, it's too bad he didn't live today. Because today, vital religion isn't opposed in the church, just outside the church, right? And so we begin to think a little bit through history, and we begin to think, well, is he right? And so we go back to the Old Testament And what do we find in the book of Ezra? Well, we'll get there in a second, but vital religion is opposed. We go back to the time of our Lord, and what do we find? What was true of our Lord? Look with me, if you would please, at Luke chapter 4 for an idea of whether or not the revival of true religion and The coming of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought was welcomed and embraced. Luke chapter 4, let's begin with verse 18. 
There we read this. Let's start with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee. So this was his homeland. He was a homeboy there. In the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and what? Was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, so now he's a homeboy, homeboy. Where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In other words, this is a revival. This is a reform. And Jesus is saying it's happening. And then what happens? He closed the book, verse 20, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were breathless with anticipation. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In an evangelical church, that's where the statement would end. Do you understand that? It's all encouraging. It's a positive message. And he ends on a positive note. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, Tim, end on a positive note. Did Jesus end on a positive note? Well, look at what he does. And all were speaking well of him. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Think of their pride. This is Joseph's son. And he said to them, now you want to talk about raining on a parade. Here it is. Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, you're all sitting there thinking, hey, they got goodies. We're going to get goodies. The homeboy's back. He has more loyalty to us than he did to them. And so no doubt you're going to say, come on, we get the goodies. We're here. This is us. All right. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Now, this, if you don't get it, is a discouraging word. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So what Jesus is saying is, you're saying I'm a homeboy. You're saying bring to me all the goodies. Listen to me. A prophet is without honor among his own people. And they begin to get an idea that this revival, this reform, this bringing in of the kingdom of God is not as sweet as they thought it was going to be, right? And then what does he say? But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, do you all know what's going on there? You should be able to read your Bibles and know what's going on here. Jesus is saying, okay, I'm the homeboy. I'm going to give you goodies, right? But remember, a prophet is without honor in his own land. Or not without honor, except in his own land. And then he says to them, you remember the time of Elijah when God poured out blessings on a certain widow? Do you remember that that widow was not an Israelite? but was a foreigner. 
She was not of the people of God. Now, how do you think they're feeling at this point? They're all ready for the kingdom of God to be brought to them and all the goodies. The poor are going to be released. Captives are going to be released. The kingdom's going to be brought in, right? And so they're anticipating it. Here comes the homeboy. He's going to give them goodies. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to be honored by you. Furthermore, do you remember that the widow that God blessed through Elijah was not an Israelite? And they're going, <laughs> because their entire claim was based on what? Their claim was based on the fact that he was a homeboy and would give God's people all the blessings that Isaiah had prophesied. So watch what happens next. He didn't think the example had yet nailed it home. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. We all get it at this point, don't we? It's not a Jew again, but rather a foreigner. And what does it say, verse 28? And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So here's the beginning of Christ bringing the kingdom of God. Is vital religion opposed? Within minutes, they go from saying that graciousness is just falling from his lips. You know, all smug and secure and okay, it's our turn. And bang, they're ready to throw him off the cliff and kill him. <clears throat> Look with me at John chapter 3. Think of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God, a revival and reform. We see that one of the religious leaders comes to, Nic to Jesus at night named Nicodemus. And we've all memorized John 3.16. But Jesus said more than verse 16. Again, Jesus is balanced. Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, as Moses, verse 14 Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. He's speaking about going up on the cross, and that those that look to the cross will be saved to his body and blood. Then verse 16 that we all know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. If you ever memorize this as an evangelical child, Good News Club, you never memorize what comes after this. You probably stop with verse 16, maybe verse 17, but you didn't go into verse 18. But look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you certainly didn't go to verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and what? Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Listen, people, every single time that there's a work of the Holy Spirit, every single time it is a divisive work. If you ever are part of a work of the Holy Spirit that's not divisive, 
It's a counterfeit. Jesus divided. The Holy Spirit divides. The Reformation divided. The work of God divides. It does divide. Jesus Himself said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, does that mean He didn't come to bring peace? No. He said to His disciples, peace I leave with you. I give to you. But, He says, not as the world gives it do I give it to you. And so the people who worshipped Him received peace. Those who had faith in Him received peace. Those who believed in God's anointing received peace. Always, always there are those who refuse to worship, refuse to believe, refuse to have faith in Him. And the great scandal to His people is always that they look accurately at what's going on with the others and don't try to to be mollycoddling and lying and deceiving about the nature of the, the divisiveness of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Remember Joseph's sermon at Christmas? Remember Joseph talking about the divisiveness of Christ as we go home to have our family reunions and how all of us want to escape the scandal of Christ's divisiveness and try to act as if the blood is thicker than water, the water of baptism, that really the people we're related to were tighter to than the people that worship Christ. And that's always what is at stake in our families. Jesus again said what? He said, the enemies of a man will be the members of his own family. This is Jesus. Jesus said that we have to hate our father, mother, wife, son, daughter. All right. Now, of course, Jesus didn't mean that we shouldn't have filial obligations, that we shouldn't honor and obey our parents. But this is the scandal of the division. And every single time this division issue comes up to American evangelicals, it's scandalous to us. And we remove those who call our attention to it, saying that they're what? That, that, they're, that, that they're young and zealous. And when they get old like us, they'll, they'll give up such divisiveness. They'll realize that everybody is just the same. All right? That they're reformed, and reformed people are always going around making divisions. That they're patriarchal, and patriarchal people just don't get it. I mean, can't they see what God's doing in our time? In other words, if you refuse to see how the Holy Spirit works across history, across time, then you will always attack those who are the source of the burr under the saddle, the sword, the, the, the division. All right? And what you have to see as we come to our text this morning is that the people of God are presented with a wonderful opportunity. All they have to do is just Make common cause with other worshipers of Yahweh, the true God. There's not really anything at stake because they're the ones that have been put in leadership by Cyrus. And so they don't have to give up their leadership. All they have to do is just make common cause with people who are pious and who want to worship the true God. People who for generations have been there in the land worshiping the true God and who want to help. And who can, who can object to helping? Who can say no to people who want to be helpful? After all, didn't Jesus say that the one who isn't against him is for him? And didn't Moses out in the wilderness, when there were some guys who were prophesying who hadn't been selected to prophesying, didn't Moses say, you don't have to be zealous for my pride. You know, I wish that everybody would prophesy. In other words, there's a, 
there's an open-mindedness and an acceptance and a, and a hopefulness that's always at the center of religion. And, and, and we ought to be willing to accept people that aren't like us. I mean, does it always have to be about what we are like and who has skin color like us and, you know, who has an education like us? Don't you get tired of that? You know, don't you find yourself wanting to have somebody here who isn't like you? And, you know, they weren't quite like the Jews that came from captivity. They, they were different, but isn't God larger than our petty differences? And you go, yeah, He's larger than our petty differences. You bet He is. <sighs> yeah. Doesn't that feel good? You want me to say it again? You know, because what? Well, you can fit into the university if you go around saying, isn't God larger than our petty differences? You know, think about that. Diversity. Ha! 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 Diversity. And inclusivity. And pluralism. Oh, I'm just being stroked where I itch. You get sucked in. You haven't begun to read your Bibles. You have not begun to read your Bibles. If you get sucked in, let me tell you first of all, Satan's a liar. He's invented lying. Every time he promises to give you something, he doesn't give it. That's the one thing you can be sure about. If Satan comes to you with a bargain, it won't be a bargain. If he tells you that if you just go along with a little bit of this diversity, inclusivity, pluralism gunk, then he'll give you honor among men. Guess what? You'll be canned from your Ph.D. program. You say, oh, no, he always gives his wages. He's a man of his word. I say, oh, really? God calls him the father of lies. So you think you can trust him? You make compromises. You'll be booted from your Ph.D. program. You don't make compromises and you will be blessed by God like Daniel was. That though they hate you, they will see that you are busy about doing good works. And they'll honor you. Satan never gives you what he says he's going to give you. He never, never, ever does it. There's more diversity in this church than I, you, will ever have. Because we have me and Stephen Bradley in the same room. And if that isn't diversity, I don't know what is. He is never entirely comfortable with me. And I am never entirely comfortable with him. He is... Well, never mind. And he would tell you what I am. We've got lots of diversity here. You don't ever need to be ashamed of diversity. What you need to understand is this issue of diversity always ends up costing the people of God their conscience and their integrity and their faithfulness to the Word of God. It always will cost you. Always. So now, with that introduction, let's read the text. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, 
They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ezer Hadden, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's not hard to see what's going on here, right? What you have is you have a group of people coming and offering themselves to help a godly work. The godly work is the building of the temple. And they're saying, we want to help. Furthermore, we worship the same God. And furthermore, we've been here worshiping the same God a lot longer than you have. All right? You see that? Look at the text. Verse 2, since the days of Ezra Hayden, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. We've been here a long time worshiping the true God. You've been off in a foreign land, and we've been here doing what you're trying to do. So we want to make common cause with you, and we want to help you. Now, inclusivity and pluralism and diversity would welcome such an offer of assistance. It would realize that uh, they're not a part of our group, but we shouldn't resent them because they've been here longer than we have. And after all, they worship Yahweh. And what kind of standard are you going to set? You know, when are you going to be pleased? Do people have to, you know, worship the triune God? Do they have to be Protestant? Do they have to be Reformed? And do they have to believe in women not exercising authority over men, and do they have to... And you can see the lines that we go down, and we say, you know, how much like me do they have to be before I'll accept them helping me? So what was at stake here? I mean, we know the truth, because Scripture is inspired by God, and it starts the section out by saying what? Look at the text. Right at the beginning, it tells you what's going on here. Who are they? They're the enemies. And the reason it says enemies of particular people, namely Benjamin and Judah, is that Benjamites and the, Judah, the tribe of Judah were down in the south, down in Judea, and Samaria was up north. And so they're the enemies of these southern tribes, all right? And, and that stands for the whole. So we know right at the beginning that Scripture says they're the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. In other words, they're the enemies of this enterprise. But they sound good. If you were to walk into the bedroom, the fox is dressed up real well. Has a wonderful pasty white face just like a grandmother would have. Nice little bonnet, right? And even tries to sound like grandmother. But it's not grandmother. It's an enemy. All right? Why? Well, to find out why, let's turn back to the book of First Kings. Uh, I mean, Second Kings chapter 17. Look back there with me, please. Second Kings 17, verse 24. 
Here's the account that's behind this. This is, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. All right? We go back and we look and see what exactly is going on. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthath and from Ava and from Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So pagans are brought into God's land and settled. All right. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Well, that's, you know, that's typical ancient, patriarchal, pre-scientific, non-empirical kind of ignorance. You know, the lions God would send. I mean, we know God didn't do things like that, right? There must have been some super fertility of lions at that time, and they ran out of deer. Right? Okay, so he sent lions among them, and behold, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away from exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Not all the nations... All the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heaven and the earth. This is a God that's associated with a particular land. All right. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the customs of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation what? Every nation what? still made gods, plural. Is this a revival of true religion? No, it's syncretism. You can have your Virgin Mary on one side of the church and you can have Jesus on the other. All right? Every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Beneth, the men of Cuth made Nurgle, and the men of Hamath made Ashima. Who are these names? These are their gods, their local gods, the gods of their lands. All right? And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartik, and the Sepharvites burned. What? What? What did they do? Burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. Is this a revival of true religion? Is that what this is? They have a man of God among them, a priest. He's teaching them how to fear God. And look at what it looks like. They burn their children. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. Okay, so what do you have? This is called syncretism. Syncretism is when you take a little bit of God and a little bit of demons, idols, and you clomp them together and think you've come up with a hybrid and that you can take out an AKC certificate. Okay? This is what you have. Now, is this hard for us to understand? Now, I love you. 
And because I love you, I'm going to push you. Is this hard for you to understand? Here is a wonderful offer to help. It's these people who have all the gods of their geographical lands, plus the God, the true God, together, clumped together. These are the Samaritans. You remember what Jesus said when the Samaritan woman got in a debate with him about who was the true God. She, again, was making the same case that these people are making in Ezra, that she worshipped the true God, that her people worship. She was the descendant of this group I just read about right here. She's the descendant of the people offering Zerubbabel to help. She's what? A Samaritan. And she comes to Jesus, and what does she say to Jesus? <clears throat> Let me find the text and read it, if I can, quickly. The woman said to him, John fourteen nineteen, Sir, Jesus, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So they had put up, uh, in Gerizim, they had put up a wonderful temple. Alexander had given them permission to do this. It had been there to receive their worship. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. We Samaritans worship here. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what, what? You do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Is there any question about the credentials of the Samaritans? There's none. The text starts saying they're their enemies. The text records Jesus saying salvation is of the Jews when the direct question is put to him. We've heard about the various corruptions of the worship of the true God that the Samaritans had engaged in from the beginning. And now you begin to understand why it was that Zerubbabel said, thank you, no thanks. Because really, the kisses of your enemy have a terrible cost. They weren't offering to help. What they wanted to do was shut the work down. They didn't want to help. You say, oh, how judgmental of you. I say, finally, I have the text of Scripture to stand on. It's not me being judgmental. I'm simply quoting the text of Scripture. It says they're their enemies. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. So how about if I exhort you, all of us need to be wise at the various associations we make, whatever business partners you take on, whatever wife you take on, husband, uh, be very, very wise and don't make common cause with those who don't worship the true God. Let's stand and have the benediction. Not one of you. Oh, you were all listening. <laughs> Good. That's not the application. It is an application. But there's a more direct one. And the more direct one is that the people of God must not be naive. When you have... The Gibeonites coming to you and showing you how their sandals are worn out and all their wineskins are, are dusty and crusty and cracking and their bread is crumbs and dry. And they say to you, make a treaty. We've come a long ways. And you look at them and, and you trust your eyes. You trust them to be honest. And so you make a treaty. What happens? Do you remember that story? What happens? The Bible says 
that you did not ask of the Lord when you made that treaty, and they will be your thorn in a flesh for generations to come. It sounded like a good truce. They're from far away. You know, they're outside the promised land. There's nothing at stake here. Let's make a treaty. We've got a lot of work to do today. Let's Come on, come on, come on. Let's be efficient. Right? And the Bible says they didn't stop to ask the Lord. So many, many centuries later, I'm riding a plane next to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi's son. And we get talking about why I believe that we must call them to Jesus, even though he says it's genocide for me to do that. And I explained to him that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And that we believe that those who do not bow the knee to Jesus and place their faith in him will go to hell. That they will not be accepted by God. And that that includes God's own people, the Jews. And that that's why Christians love them and try to preach the gospel to them. And in the course of that conversation, of course, what's up for grabs is whether anything's at stake. In other words, whether hell really exists. And so I ask him what they believe about the afterlife. And he talks about something approaching heaven. And then I say, what about those who are evil? What do you believe about them? And he says, well... You know, in time, in other words, they have something analogous to to purgatory, you know. Uh, And I say, everyone? And then, of course, you know what I say. Hitler? He going to make it in time? You know what that young man said to me? He said, well, he said, you know, I... And his voice got quiet and he said, our rabbis tell us that Hitler may have been a Gibeonite. You realize what's going on there? He's saying that God still today is punishing us for making that truce. You realize that? Amazing. Those people have more biblical understanding than many, many Bible-believing Christians in this country because they believe that God does punish And they, in their own groups, privately, I can't imagine Jews saying that to other Gentiles. But somehow I got a a look right in. He says, our our rabbis tell us that Hitler may have been a Gibeonite. We're still today paying for that truce that we made. He may have been a descendant of those who, who sucked us in. Now, you look here. Is Ezra making compromises? Is Ezra proceeding? Is Ezra saying, if anybody offers to help, I'll take him up, up, take him at his word? Is Ezra naive? What about Zerubbabel? Naive? No. Uh-uh. Scripture clearly, clearly approves of this decision. What was their problem? Well, let's start with child sacrifice. And you say, well, that was a no-brainer. And I say, oh, really? So when your friends and loved ones go to a PC USA church where they have a document still that says that abortion can be an act of faithfulness before God, and you look at them and you say, well, we're not the only right church in this community. You know, Tim, shut up! I've had it with you. You know, why do you always have to be talking about other churches that aren't faithful? I say, okay, John Newton can do it. Martin Luther can do it. John Calvin, John Knox, Richard Baxter, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I can't do it. 
I can't point out to you the compromises that are involved in us making common cause with a church that says that the killing of unborn children in the mother's womb is an act of faithfulness before God. I'm not allowed to tell you that. You think that it's just because I'm a little younger than you are and I haven't yet had my rough edges, you know, smoothed off. If your loved ones go to a church that says that the killing of unborn children in their mother's wombs, and they don't stop there, they also endorse infanticide in cases of defects. They also endorse older people kicking off and being helped to kick off. I mean, I could go on and on. And you're telling me that this doesn't have application to us today? You have friends that go to the mainline denominational churches and you think that, that what? That nothing's at stake because they tell me they love Jesus. Well, what did these people say? They said, we worship the true God. This is the nature of syncretism. It's always saying, we're one of you. And then they what? They send their daughter down to the local abortuary and pay $350 or $500 to have their daughter's child killed? And you say, well, nothing's at stake. We're not the only right church. I say, okay, fine. I'll give you the mainliners. If you want to say they're Christians, you want to make common cause with them, I grow weary. I'll move on. How about churches that deny the Trinity? How about Pentecostal oneness churches? Nothing at stake there? Deny the Trinity. Is that okay? After all, they lead pious lives. Their women all have long hair, and isn't that what you want, Tim? Barefoot and pregnant? Okay, forget the Pentecostals and forget the mainliners. How about churches that teach baptismal regeneration? That they believe that baptism is essential for salvation. Nothing at stake there. It sure goes down smoothly, let me tell you. To teach that somehow the act of baptism is something we can point to and not worry about the condition of our souls and our children's souls. Let me tell you, that's been one of the main destructive acts of pastors and elders and parents through the centuries. I can tell you about it. I was a pastor in in Partyville, Wisconsin. And when I came into my churches, what I found was that once I used to say this to the people, once you reach 16 years of age, you have an obligation as a Presbyterian to leave this church and not come back until you're ready to be married, and then when you have your child, and then when you die. Because you have to have the wedding there, and you have to have the baby baptisms there, and you have to have the funeral there. Of course, the funeral homes are taking over funerals. So who knows? Maybe just weddings and baptisms. And if the country clubs get really nice, maybe we'll just get the baptisms. This is my church. What was going on? These people had all been baptized as babies. And what they had learned was then you come back for confirmation class and have your first communion. And then you come back to be married. And then you come back to be buried. And if you want to be really spiritual, you come at Easter and Good Friday and Christmas, maybe. What is this? This is baptismal regeneration. And 
the largest church in town was a very conservative Lutheran church called Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Two, one day, two of their kids, who were about 14, came in my office. They were on release from school to ask a local person who worked what their work was like. So they chose the preacher of the Presbyterian church. So they came in my office and asked me what my work was like. We talked for a few minutes. And then I sat and listened to them as they talked between themselves. And they began to talk about confirmation class. And what one said to the other was, my dad says that I have to go to confirmation, but once it's over, I never have to go back to church. I say, really? Really? Can you imagine a Lutheran child believing that? It just boggles my mind. That's for you, Brandon. Where are you? There you are. That is baptismal regeneration. That is sacramentalism. That is where people trust in the sacraments instead of having a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so what? Churches that teach that? Churches that have that as a part of their doctrine? We can make common cause. Let's build the kingdom of God, you know? After all, we and the Roman Catholics are down picketing the abortuary every week. Why would you want to say anything negative about people that understand the killing of unborn children? They sit down there and they go clackety, 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 clackety. And what's the clackety? It's the rosary. What does that have to do with Jesus Christ? You say, oh, Tim, here you go again. I say, no, 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 really, what does the rosary have to do with Jesus Christ? And you say, well, it talks about his mother. Yeah, it does talk about his mother. Clackety, 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 clackety. You say, where does that clackety come from? Well, I had a friend. He converted from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism, which is not much of a conversion. And once he got into Roman Catholicism, he then came to our house to visit. And he's a godly man. Roman Catholic, godly. Yes, you heard me say it. And I said to him, John, tell me, what's this about the rosary? And he said, well, Tim, I, I'm sure that you won't like what I'm about to say to you. He's a, he's a lawyer. He's godly. He's the guy, if you read on my blog, that has had an unbelievably profound influence on Mary Lee's in my life. Tim, you're not going to like... He came to Christ through InterVarsity. He's wise. He's godly. Tim, you're not going to like this, but I say the rosary because I find that it's much like riding in a train. I'm comforted by the clackety, 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 clackety of the wheels running over the joints of the rails. Or of the rails. He said that. He finds the clackety, 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 clackety. You say, Tim, enough on the Roman Catholic Church. Move on. I say, okay, what about evangelical churches? What about evangelical churches that say that We'll be able to reach the culture better if we put women in leadership over men. You know, think of how much better it would be to have just one woman up with the band. You know, and Dawn's so pretty, and she has such a nice voice. And then if we could get a few women taking the offering, and then a woman reading the Scripture, and maybe doing the pastoral prayer, because there's nothing against that in Scripture. And if we could have women serving communion, that, that would be the icing on the cake. And maybe have 
a deaconess board and a deacon board and then like mush them all up in the bulletin so it's not clear. And so we can have officers who are women. And, you know, really, Tim, when you're gone, you know, don't you think that really Lauren Pickett would make a good preacher? Actually, yes. And I can think of other women here who would make excellent preachers. Except for that one thing. That as they preach, they would be exercising authority over men. And that's been banned by God. By the order of creation. And so all around us are all these evangelical churches that have women pushed into positions that are prominent. And we say, well, you know, Tim, there's room enough for all of us. You know, Zerubbabel, there's room enough for all of us. Do you really not have need of more workers? Wouldn't you like the sort of homeboy advantage we'd bring you? We've been living here a while. We've been worshiping the true God here a while. There's just a few little children that have to be put in the mouths of Moloch and burned. You know, just a few children that need to, to be put forward as leaders in our church. Just a little baptismal regeneration, a little call of Mary, a little denial of the Trinity. You know, just a few little things and think of how much more powerful this church would be. You know, Tim, you're always making us uncomfortable because you're just so rigid and you want everybody to be just like you. They say, no, I vomit over myself. I can't stand myself. I'm proud and I abhor myself. Isn't that a weird pair? No, it's not about me. Brothers and sisters, it's this. It's this. I tell you, it's this. And it can be objectively known. Don't listen to your postmodernist liars. It has truth. Postmodernism is old and in the way for me. I, I bit into feminism and postmodernism 30 years ago. I can remember being at a presbytery meeting where one of the muckety-mucks in the PCUSA, head of Dubuque Seminary, Arlo Duba, came up to me, and we were talking about women in authority and leadership in the church. And he said to me, well, you know, Tim, he said, Jesus would have changed it, except that it was such a part of his culture at the time that he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't, he, he couldn't do that one. You know, Jesus did every other one and got killed for doing them. But he couldn't go against... He couldn't go against the patriarchal culture of his time. I said, really, Arla, is that what you've seen about Jesus? He's just a wimp? He's watching around, trying to figure out what things he can smack up against and what things he needs to stroke? Is that what Jesus looks like to us? So we went on. I said, what about Timothy, where it says, I don't allow a woman to exercise authority of men. She must be silent. For Adam was created first, then Eve. You know what he said to me? He said, well, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And I said, oh, yeah, Arlo. Yeah, Arlo. Actually, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said President Duba. President of our seminary. I said, tell me this. When you read Mark Twain, and the book says that Jim walked to the edge of the raft 
dove into the Mississippi and surfaced 20 feet out. If I were to tell you that what's actually being said by the author is that the DC-10 taxied off from the gate to the runway, lowered its flaps, and took off. <laughs> I mean, come on! It's absurd! If he wrote that Jim dove into the Mississippi and surfaced 20 feet out, we all understand that. The Bible doesn't say whatever you want it to say. The Bible has objective, propositional truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. All right? And all of you are there. Amen, brother. I do not allow a, man, a woman to exercise authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was created first, and then Eve. And Adam, it was not Adam that was deceived, but Eve being deceived took of the fruit and ate. And you go, shut up, brother. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Okay, so where are you with me? You know, you understand what's at stake here. You bring them into the proposition of building the temple, and they really want to destroy the temple. And Zerubbabel says, no, and I say to you today, we must not bring them in until they're converted. And you say, well, but they love Jesus. I say, yeah, they loved Yahweh. They said they worshiped the true God. And you say, yeah, but Tim, the Bible just says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Pentecostals confess that Jesus is Lord. I say, yeah, but they deny the Trinity. You say, well, Tim, you know, not everybody has to be like us. Can't you loosen up a little bit? And I say, no. And you say, you know, we need a new pastor. I say, you know, you better get one. Because it isn't going to change. It isn't going to change if I'm 75 and still have a mouth. And the reason is that my mouth is under the authority of Scripture. That's why. When Adam invited me to go on the campus and be opposite people who were pro-killing old people, you know what I said? The first thing I said when I was, and it was with, what, an attorney, a professor, a doctor, muckety-mucks like Adam. Okay? You know what I said? I said, I want to say, first of all, before I tell you my position on the killing of old people. I want you to understand I am a minister of the word and sacraments. And what that means is I am under the authority of this word. Do you understand that? This is my authority. To the degree that I am faithful to this, I am faithful to my job. To the degree that I am unfaithful to this, I am a rebel from hell. I don't care who's ordained me. I don't care what denomination I'm a part of. And the same thing is true of every one of you. And in this church, there are those who have made like they're one of us, and they are not. And their goal here is to destroy the truth of God. And it is our job as elders and pastors to ferret them out. And you say, oh, does that mean me? And I say, it may mean me. If I get up here and begin to preach myself and begin to make compromises so that we can have more people, and you begin to smell a rat when I'm around, then you need to ferret me out. You say, oh, nobody in this church would do that to Tim Bailey. I say, huh. if that's true, you shouldn't go to church here. I have confidence that Wayne, that Lawrence, that David, 
and I could go through all the elders of this church would do it. And if they didn't, the deacons would pick up where they left off. And let me tell you, the deacons and elders, as they considered their decision, would feel the nip at their rear ends of Lucas and of Steve Moxie and of Bob Sands and of Adam and of Joseph. So what do you want to be? You want to be a broad and wide person or you want to be a straight and narrow person? You know Jesus said that broad is the path and many find it that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way. Did you think that was just a hypothetical construct? Are you tired of being on the narrow way? You know, one last thing, and then a few promises and we'll end, because I'm going to end on the upbeat. It's always the case that the people who are most willing to accept the truths of Scripture that are hardest in our day and time are those who are unbelievers. And the real battle is with false believers. And so what you really have to do is be willing to say no to people who claim to be worshipers of the true God so that you can be evangelistic with joy to those who are on the highway to hell and know it and say it. I would much rather stand around with that guy from what's the name of the band that I ran into that guy in the airport? ZZ Top. Big beard invited me to a concert. I figured he was a rock star because all the people that went by him were like, you know, doing their obeisance, you know. So I asked him, he's some kind of rock star. And he said, yeah, I'm a guitar. Listen, I wouldn't hesitate to give the gospel to, to ZZ Top. But Gilbert Bilizekian, his ears are deaf. He has cultivated deafness. He says that those who submit to Scripture's teaching on manhood and womanhood are demonic. And he says it in the pages of the Navigator's Journal called Discipleship. Now, who do you want to present the Gospel to? Do you understand? Be on guard against syncretists, people who claim to worship the true God and don't. But be unbelievably open-hearted, loving, and cheerful with pagans. <laughs> because they're ripe. Because why? Because they haven't sullied their conscience for 30 years. Their conscience is still pristine. I'm on the highway to hell. And you go to them and what? Sinners and publicans will enter the kingdom of God. Because that's who was hanging with Jesus all the time. Okay, you don't like the opposition. Here are a few promises as we end. It does get tiring, but here are the promises. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Somebody knows it. Recite it. I can't hear you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Matthew 16, 18. Come on, some of you have come out of the Roman Catholic Church. Let's hear it. I also say to you that you are Peter. 
And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Right on? John 16.33. Do you know that one? Anybody know John 16.33? These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And for, finally, 1 John 4.4. 4. Anybody know that one? You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he who is in the world. Yeah, we're foolish, but we're fools for Christ. Let's stand. I'll give you the benediction. The end of Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.